0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. So, welcome, Rebel Educators, to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I am here today with Paula Finbo. Paula is the Executive Director at Aspire After School Learning in the Washington, D.C. area. She's a natural leader and a talented strategic thinker with an infectious spirit of hope and a sense of humor that inspires loyalty and generates results. She has over 15 years of experience leading social justice organizations and programs in the United States, Latin America, India, and Colombia. She has a master's in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and a bachelor of science from the University of Minnesota which incidentally is where Paula and I met, because I also have an undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota. So welcome, Paula. I'm so excited to get a chance to chat with you about this next chapter and what you've been doing.
1: Thanks, Tanya. And I was going to add probably the most important thing to that bio is also former college student, almost roommate with you, Tanya.
0: (laughs) I know I tell stories. I feel like I spent so much time at your place.
1: (laughs) we had some fun.
0: We definitely (laughs) did. Yes. Maybe we'll share those stories later. (laughs) So, but you have spent most of your career since college in social justice work and supporting the advancement of marginalized communities around the world. So how does that work inform the work you're doing now with Aspire? And can you share a little of that journey with us?
1: Sure. Um, So right after college, actually, I think my senior year during college, I started working overnights at a homeless shelter in North Minneapolis because it was an opportunity where I could stay up all night, get my homework done, go to classes in the morning and then sleep during the day. But in addition to that, I think it really fundamentally shaped my values. I remember working with families at the shelter who would come in for many many different reasons, you know, be able to find an apartment to move to with their kids and then be back at the homeless shelter within a month through no fault of their own, you know, but as a result of broken systems and systems that were not responsive to people based on, you know, race, ethnicity, language, income levels. It was just, there's a lot of hurdles. And I think that is what fundamentally helped shape how I see the world in terms of those, you know, systemic injustices and wanted to show up and do what I can to challenge those um, systems. And so throughout, you know, the last 20 years, that brought me to doing community organizing and political work in Minneapolis, across the U.S., internationally, in India and Latin America, where we lived in Bogota for a few years, and then it is what brought me to Aspire. Um, our students are just these amazing, bright, curious, joyful young people who have so much to bring to the world. And through many circumstances, they don't have the same opportunities to learn and contribute as their more affluent peers. And I think that is an injustice to them. But it's really an injustice to all of us. There's so many problems in the world. We can only benefit when we have the best, most diverse minds that are able to fulfill their potential, become all they aspire to be. And I'm thrilled that that is where my work in life has led me now to be part of Aspire and to really helping our students and their families learn what they need to learn and grow and achieve and be amazing people.
0: Hearing you talk and hearing you talk about how we need to really work with all different sorts of people and give them all the chance to bring all of their brightness and ideas and life and collaboration into the world is part of what caused me to launch our elementary school as well, is that you know there are so many students for different reasons and different disabilities that are kind of sitting out of school and kind of push to the sidelines of society and how do we bring all of them in and how do we make sure that everyone's ideas are listened to and how do we teach all of our students to work with all different types of students who may be different from them, whether it's race or culture or socioeconomic or ability or disability, right? How do we connect all of them so that they can create a better future for all of us?
1: Right on a very personal level, um, my husband is African American and growing up in the Minneapolis public school system, you know, being like this young kid full of energy who also was this uh, crazy nerd and read like the dictionary every night before bed to learn new words, got labeled as that he shouldn't be in the classes that he was, you know, that he, you know, quote unquote had special needs or, you know, attention deficit disorder and It was through, you know, his parents own advocacy of saying like, no, my son is bright and here's where he needs to be that now he works on international disaster assistance. And I just think like how much of the world would have been cheated by not fostering his genius. And I think that's true for each and every one of us. And sometimes in ways, you know, more than others, I think it does all of us an injustice to shut the door on a young person, regardless of, like you said, ability, disability, race, ethnicity, culture, language. We need all the young geniuses in the world we can get right now. And we have to look broadly and provide that bridge, you know, across the opportunity gap so that all students can get there.
0: Yeah. And it's often those young geniuses that our school system doesn't seem to serve as well. There's a book called Troublemakers that one of my educators gave me for Christmas. I don't know if you've read it, but it talks through four kids' stories of their experience in a specific school in a specific setting. And it's the same thing. It's younger kids who, for whatever reason, don't fit into their school because of their culture, because of their background, because of their race because of an ADHD or another diagnosis, right? And so they're labeled as these high energy kids and as, you know, kind of as these troublemakers and they're pulled out of class for different things. And they're requested to go on medication to help them fit in when really as schools and as the author of that book, and I can't think of her name right now as she's talking about, she's like, we really need to not try to find ways to fit these, for lack of a a better way, like these square kids into round school holes, right? Like, how do we, instead of trying to adapt the kid to fit in, how do we adapt our school system so that we can really support all of these young learners in all of their different ways and modalities of being and of learning?
1: Yeah, that resonates. I think that's true for our education system right now. And I think it's true for a lot of nonprofits. We have limited resources. And so I think there's this kind of knee jerk reaction to then go to the middle, the middle line, you know, like serve the 60% and those who fall, you know, underneath. We can't slow down. You know, we have to do what we can, you know, with where we're at. And it gets blamed on resources. But I think it's really a values issue of who are we as nonprofit leaders, as, you know, leaders in education to not want to, Really look at the unique and different ways that students learn. And, um, we shouldn't be driven to serve the 60 to 65% and call that a day. You know, we should be driven to serve the 100%. And some of that's going to look a little different. But as leaders, I think, you know, with COVID, the world is changing so quickly, you know, and we have a choice to plug in and do like, what was the status quo? or to lean in and just do things differently in a way that works better for folks. And I really hope this collective energy that I see emerging, you know, in terms of equity and access conversations and education and nonprofit really helps us get to that next level. Because going back to how I started, we need the talents and contributions of all of us to deal with the magnitude of problems we have right now. And Shutting the door to those who fall outside of that 65, 70% doesn't do us or the world any good.
0: Yeah. Previous to this, you worked in social emotional learning with Sandy Hook Promise and helping to build social emotional capacities of school districts. And you're just talking about the values that we need to have as leaders of nonprofit organizations, as leaders of educational institutions. And frankly, as leaders of businesses everywhere, and as things are shifting, as we're having more of these diversity and inclusion conversations, what do you see as those values or those characteristics and those things that we need to be teaching? Like, What is the biggest challenge to teaching them and what are the things that we should be focusing on moving forward?
1: Wow, Too big questions. Um. <laughs> Sorry
0: about that. I have a habit of asking really big questions.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, just what does it need? I go back to resources, but resources are aligned with values, you know, like budgets, whether it's the federal budget or a school district's budget or a nonprofit budget, they reflect our values, whether we think they do or not. What we spend our resources on is a direct reflection of our values. And we are living in a time and space right now where billionaires can travel to outer space, but we're not ensuring that the most vulnerable students have the access to tutoring and after school support and that their families have the resources to feel safe and comfortable and keep their kids' bellies full. And that all contributes to social emotional learning. It's hard to learn If you don't feel safe, if you don't have those basic needs met. And I think what's needed is collectively looking at making sure that the most vulnerable of us have the basics, quality and affordable child care, meals and nutrition, safe, affordable housing, you know, all of these things to create that stability. And then on top of that, I think we all need greater lessons in empathy and kindness and the ability to look at things through a strengths versus a deficit-based lens and to understand, I guess, to move to more of an abundance mindset that if the kid across the street has access to this or this in their school, it doesn't mean that my kid doesn't live in a time and place where all of our students can have great things. So quit looking at it as kind of a deficit or that there's less to share when really we live in a really abundant time where if we have the will, we can collectively come together and ensure that that happens.
0: We definitely have those resources. We live in a country of abundance. We have the most billionaires and millionaires per capita, I believe, in the world. And so there's definitely no lack of resources here, but kind of where you started, how do we align those resources with our values? As a country, I'm not sure that our actions align with our words. People say that we want all of these things, but nobody's willing to actually back them with the resources.
1: Yeah. I think I've evolved in my thinking on this like over the years where from political or community organizing at this like big, broad national level to change like these whole collective mindsets. And one of the thrilling things for me has been joining Aspire after school this past summer where it is a smaller organization and working more locally. And I have felt more empowered than I have in years being able to create that change. So on Martin Luther King Day, instead of, you know, closing for the holiday, Aspire stayed open. And one of the things we did that day on our day of service is had a training with board members, all of our staff, and all of our AmeriCorps service members. And together across different generations and backgrounds, races, ethnicity, income level, personal experience, had really rich conversations around inclusive language, and how do we make sure that we're centering our families and our students in our work and really starting from that base. And then I helped design a value scorecard because our organization recently adopted, you know, five values. And it was a scorecard of kind of seemingly simple questions, but I think questions a lot of us as organizations don't pause to reflect that, you know, but... As a result of making this decision, how is that impacting equity and access? How is it empowering our families and our students? Is it creating harm or marginalization in any way? When we say we want to be in the community, how are we defining community and how are we centering our students and families in that discussion? And it was such a rich conversation, and great to feel like all this values alignment between who I aspire to be as a person, who I aspire to be in my work, and as an and as a leader, and just seeing these different voices come together, and without the fear of if we center our students and families, maybe we will lose some funders, but we're also going to gain a lot more funders and, and, and really looking at it through, you know, this asset and abundance versus a deficit lens. And it was one of probably the more meaningful Martin Luther King days for me to be sitting in those conversations. And it wasn't citywide. It wasn't statewide. It wasn't nationally, but it was very meaningful conversations within an organization where we're able to impact hundreds of students and families a year. And I think there's a lot of value of starting where you're at and, you know, nurturing those seeds and see see where it goes from there. I also think it's important for people who are working in education, nonprofit, social justice work, the work can be hard and finding those bright spots, finding those values alignment, you know, seeing where you can make the real tangible difference today is what sustains us, you know, because we need more people doing this work. We need more people who are plugged into living their lives led by their values. And in order to sustain that, we also have to take in those wins and acknowledge a, you know, where we can change things.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things that I've talked about a few different times and kind of different ways to start a revolution or different ways to create change. And there's the way of trying to start at the top and trying to change the mindset of those who are in power or you know, trying to overthrow the whole cart and buggy. Or there's the way of creating a million dots of light and a million points of change and shifting everything locally. And so that all of that change has a trickle up effect into creating change eventually at the top levels because- everybody demands it and it sounds like you've started from a really broad how do we change things at a national or a state or a even a county level into a very very deep community seated effort of how do we change things here and how do we make things better for this group of people because it does matter it it reminds me of the story of the starfish do you remember the starfish stories yeah. The woman on the beach, and there's all of the starfish beached everywhere, and she's throwing them one by one back into the ocean. And, you know, somebody else comes by and is like, what are you doing? You can't make a difference. And as she tosses one of the ocean, she's like, Well, I made a difference for that one. And, you know, instead of this huge breadth of work, how do we make what we're doing really deep and meaningful and impactful for those that we can help? Yeah. And then those will start to make a difference in the world and we'll start to create change as well
1: i I couldn't agree more. I also think we're so interconnected in this world right now, and so what might seem like an impact to one is actually an impact to many. I had the privilege of meeting a former alumni from Aspire who is now a public school teacher in Arlington Public Schools, and he said if it wasn't for the support that he got and his family received when he moved to the U.S. back in third, fourth, fifth grade at Aspire, he said, I don't think I would be a teacher today. And so while that was touching, one, he's now a public school teacher. He's working with many students who are also coming from immigrant refugee families, experiencing a lot what Him and his sister experienced what his family and, you know, to have, I think representation matters. So somebody, you know, at the head of the classroom engaging students who might feel marginalized or different or disconnected. In fostering that, that's how like touching one is now, you know, touching hundreds of kids every year, you know, even outside of what we're doing. And I think also it's so easy to kind of plug into that people are disconnected and polarized, but I have always found the best way to bridge those differences is through conversations and having conversations that cut Across values versus focusing on positions. And when you create that will, we can all like move together. It's never as fast personally as I want to see it, (laughs) but we're moving. We're moving and think in the right direction.
0: So, if you were to create a vision and create your utopian future for our youth and for education, what would that look like?
1: Super good question for me it would be looking at the whole child so understanding when you see a student in your classroom or your nonprofit organization they are coming in as whole people they're not just there to read or to do a science project but they are coming in with hopes and dreams they're coming in with connections to their family to their culture to society and the more ways we can holistically recognize that and engage that and lift that up and celebrate, whether it's culture, family experience. I think too often language is looked at as a deficit of this child, you know, doesn't speak English in the home or is learning English, but like how amazing, like I lived in a Spanish speaking country for four years and struggled every day speaking Spanish how amazing is it that we have these young people who at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old can speak multiple language. My vision is a way that we will embrace them as a whole in this holistic way that sees strengths and leans into that strength and um, fosters it and learns from it. And it just allows young people to show up as their full, whole selves.
0: Yeah. I think we often look at young people as who they are in school. And sometimes forget that they have a whole other life outside of school and outside of what they do within those walls of that building versus what their family values are and where they come from and what they're working on or struggling with or creating or whatever it is the other two-thirds of their life and their day look like.
1: Yeah. And if we want to support students, we have to support the systems that they come from. If we want great schools. That also means investing in community resources that allow people to live safely, that can easily travel to schools, that have access to fresh foods and vegetables close by, that celebrate history, race, culture. Yeah. And again, just, you know, systems that are responsive to the whole aspect of a youth and a family.
0: Absolutely. I'm going to shift gears. Because I love to hear stories from your elementary years. So since I run an elementary school, I love to hear about what people remember back from that time in their own lives. So I'd love it if you could share a story from when you were in elementary school.
1: Sure. So when I was young, my dad used to work for the government. So we'd have to move around quite frequently. So I went to like three different kindergartens and, and then a first grade, and then we transferred school again in second grade. And at that point, my mom kind of drew the line. She's like, "I don't want to have to keep pulling the kids out of school all the time. I want them to be able to go to one place." And so when I started the elementary school that I grew up in, it was in second grade, and it's a small town. So I remember like being the new kid and feeling like the new kid for the next four or five years. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I was shy because of that even though I made a really big impression because it was like on the fourth day of that second grade being new. Sandy Olson, one of my first friends, pushed me in the twirlers over lunch and I got super sick and threw up over my second grade teacher. And as a shy kid, I was mortified about that. But I remember also acts of kindness. I remember my favorite teacher, Mrs. Seymour, complimenting me on my handwriting. And I never felt as smart as my brother and my sister because they really excelled in math and science. You know, I was more of an art kid, but I had this strength in my art and my penmanship. And in Mrs. Seymour's eyes, I felt special. I think, you know, when I was talking about investing in the whole child, that's part of it, letting them know that there's an adult in their life who cares about them and recognizing them for a strength or a skill or something that just makes them unique and exceptional. I think that's pretty cool to be able to own that and to feel special in one specific way.
0: Yeah, that's a great message for all educators to remember is that they all have the power and the ability to make kids feel really special for the strengths and the traits that they have.
1: Yeah, and it makes a difference, right? When you think of any relationship that you have, when you show up and you feel valued, you're more likely to show up and that, that fosters you and that, that feeds you beyond what you will learn academically that fosters your love of school, your love of connection, your love of community and helps bring you along the continuum of being a larger part of community and knowing that because you exist in that community is ultimately a better place and you have a sense of influence on that.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. How can people learn more about what you do or get in touch with you? Ah, so, two ways I would say one,
1: please check out Aspire After School Learning. We are a small nonprofit, but we do amazing things. So, visit aspireafterschool.org to learn more about us. And if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn is always a great resource. It's LinkedIn slash Paula Finbo.
0: Thank you so much, Paula.
1: Thanks so much, Tanya.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action and if you've enjoyed this episode we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too keep resisting tradition rebel educators